Hi there, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. William Sturkey, the author of Hattiesburg, an American City in Black and White. This is his second book. He's a history professor at UNC Chapel Hill. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Sturkey. Thank you so much for having me. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Hattiesburg, Mississippi, a city of 45,000 people today. It's about 70 miles north of the Gulf Coast. It's currently a majority black city and is the perfect place, Dr. Sturkey argues, to study the way Jim Crow, white supremacy, and the civil rights movement have intersected in the South. Dr. Sturkey, first of all, when and why did you decide that? And why do we have to add Hattiesburg to our collective consciousness when it comes to the study of race in America and of America in general? So I first was interested, I first became interested in Mississippi when I was in graduate school and I was um, learning about the civil rights movement and I was really drawn to the struggle there, largely because it was perhaps the worst or the hardest place to achieve Black rights. And I really admired the courage and the faith of those freedom fighters who were working in Mississippi. I was just in awe of, of, of what they were able to accomplish you know, against such great odds. And I was really interested in Freedom Summer. I was interested in the Freedom Schools of 1964. And what drew me to Hattiesburg was really the Freedom Schools. So I wrote my master's thesis on those, and then I thought I was going to write a dissertation on those. And if you, the Freedom Schools in Hattiesburg were this incredible experiment with teaching young people about Black history, about civil rights movement, you know, and um, helping to really fold them into not only the civil rights movement itself, but become local leaders, and, you know, train local leaders for the future, which is what they did. But anyway, the Freedom Schools opened on July 2nd, 1964 in Hattiesburg. And it's this amazing scene, okay? They get hundreds of kids, 600 kids turn out for the first day of Freedom School. And they're clapping and they're singing and they're coming to the churches. And, you know, the kids get so excited and so many of them come that they actually have to close Freedom School registration, right? They say there's no more room here in the basements. We're simply out of space. And the kids, there's actually a story, the kids start sneaking their friends into school, into Freedom School. They're, they start unlocking some of the basement windows and letting them sneak in because there weren't enough spaces in Freedom School. So imagine that, right? Kids sneaking into school as opposed to out of it. One of the people who showed up that day was an 82-year-old man. And the local newspaper interviewed him. They said, you know, there's all these kids here. Some of them are five, six years old. Why are you here? You know, why are you here with these kids? And he said, I just want to learn how to register to vote. And so something was happening at that moment. That was also the same day, July 2nd, that Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. And these people just came to these churches because they thought their lives were going to be better, that they were going to be more free than anybody who had lived in their society before them. And so I, you know, I was drawn to that moment. I was wondering what was going on there. I was wondering what happened to the Freedom Schools during that summer and what happened to those young kids later on in their lives. And I, I was researching that, and I sat down to begin writing my introduction, and I couldn't get past the question that ultimately became the book. And that question was, where does all that come from? How is it possible that, you know, when these schools open on that day, 
that all these kids are drawn to these churches, that that 82-year-old man, you know, feels compelled to come down to these churches. What happened in those churches before and what happened in those communities before that allowed for this incredible burst of energy that began on July 2nd, 1964? And it, ultimately answering that question became the topic of the book. So I thought I was going to start with Freedom Schools and ultimately I ended with Freedom Schools. Um, to answer the second part of your question, Hattiesburg is a really important place in the civil rights movement. Um, you know, it was a, it was a huge or place of organizing. On January 22nd, 1964, it was the center of the American civil rights movement. But the thing about Hattiesburg too, is that it's also a stand-in for a lot of modern Southern towns. It's a new South town, it's a railroad town, you know, it's a town where people come to get out of the farm. And it's a place where black community begins to build in the 1880s and 1890s. So as important as Hattiesburg might have been in the civil rights movement, I think that you can learn lessons from this book, Hattiesburg, that you can then apply to Birmingham or Montgomery. And one of those lessons is that the origins of black organizing power in the civil rights movement is rooted in this rise of the new South. When black people begin to leave the farms of the rural South, they come to places like Atlanta and Birmingham, and they begin to build the institutions that would later allow future generations to overthrow Jim Crow. Is there a particular reason why Hattiesburg did not gain the notoriety of a Selma, you know, the fame, uh, a Selma, Atlanta? I mean, Atlanta is obviously a bigger city, so they may not be entirely fair. Charleston, um, some of these other cities and towns. Uh, is there a particular reason that didn't happen, or, or was it just lacking? the major sort of aha moment that happened in other places? You know, I think that the reason is, it's, you know, why most, most people don't know about Albany in the civil rights movement either. There was no major violent confrontation. And it's unfortunate, but that's what it takes. That's why Selma is famous to most of us. There was violence all over the civil rights movement, but Selma happened right in front of the cameras. And that's why that is so famous. That's why the Freedom Rides are so famous. You know, that's why Birmingham is so famous because of the water hoses and the dogs hitting the kids. Of course, Atlanta is famous because it's this massive city and it's the home of Martin Luther King Jr., the most famous activist in the civil rights movement. And so I think that um, that's the main reason, you know, that there was no major violent conflict necessarily. There was plenty of violence, but not that big aha moment, as you said. So you say in 1880, let's go back here uh, uh, to, I guess, what qualifies as the beginning. In 1880, Hattiesburg, you say, is the quintessential town of the New South that emerged after Reconstruction. And you argue that while Jim Crow was frequently portrayed as an unbending static system, Jim Crow actually evolved over time. Why is it important to know that? And also, how does it evolve in Hattiesburg. You say that whites and blacks both collided here after the Civil War. One of the major reasons why it's so important to understand that is because we have this perception, I think, from a lot of people that black folks in places like the in Mississippi were doing nothing more than sitting around getting lynched for 80 years, you know? And we don't actually know many details about what it is they did in between the end of Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Movement. They weren't just merely victims, they were active participants in their society. And I think that's important to understand because it helps us understand Black people's history and their contributions 
to these different cities and the country itself. The way that Jim Crow evolved was there was a few different things were happening. One was black people began to move, beginning with moving to those cities in the first place, whether they were Birmingham or Dallas or Atlanta, black people were moving in the South as these cities grew in a way that they never had before. And that movement allowed them to gain some level of freedom outside of this white gaze, right? The sharecropping system, the Jim Crow system was designed to make sure black people couldn't make decisions about where they lived or worked. But if they got up and they left, then they were making those decisions. They could also leave the South, which is a major fundamental change because when they leave the South, they can vote, they can help influence Northern politics. The other major issue is the Southern economy. The nature of the Southern economy, as I show in the book, as white Southerners are trying to hang on to Jim Crow, they're navigating through their own struggles and challenges. And part of what they have to do is to start making some concessions, or at least alter things a little bit, in order to deal with their own economic realities. And in Hattiesburg, that very much came to a head when they had a problem with a lynching at the exact same moment that they were trying to recruit this new garment factory. And they had to say, well, wait a minute, we gotta do something about this because the factories aren't gonna wanna come here if our town is filled with these lynch mobs. And so they, they had to try and end lynching in the town. Another thing you say that I think was just fascinating in the book um, is that it's just as important to study white history as it is black history when it comes to, um, when it comes to studying Jim Crow and the intersection of all these forces. Um, it's so interesting that you note that it was easy to find the history of white people through public and private documents, especially because these rich white men left behind these things. African-American archives, you said, were fewer and far between, and you traced the genealogy of one family of, of Turner and Mamie Smith and then their offspring. But explain what all that reveals about the way things worked. Well, you know, it always drove me crazy, Evan, to read about Southern history from the lens of the civil rights movement and see white people treated as if they were completely static and they were the exact same people from the 1880s through the 1960s as if these other things didn't affect broader, you know, broader access to Southern life. And that's just not the case. If you think of any, you know, it's basic common sense of human nature. These were not just unchanging clansmen who had been hiding out in the woods since the 1880s. These were sophisticated people who thought oftentimes that they were doing the right thing. And one of the things that we see in that is that it's not just black people who are affected by Jim Crow, it's society more broadly. There are losses from both, from both white and black citizens because of Jim Crow. You know, sometimes it was incredibly inconvenient, like when they were trying to build the military base during World War II, Jim Crow was a great inconvenience. And I think we also see how race changed because of these economic factors, not just you know, these waves of activism. There are other ways that race in the South changed. Writing about the, the white community and the black community felt like writing in two different genres. Because you know, as you say, these, the archivists in the 1940s and 1950s, they went out and they got the papers, you know, the diaries, the letters, that sort of thing from white families. They said, this is what we value. They said, this is what historians will want to learn about. They don't care about you know, the letters and the diaries and the photos from the black community. And even the local newspaper itself was segregated. So black people didn't usually appear in the newspaper unless they were arrested or murdered or injured in some way, or if they played on the football team, they would put the football scores in there. 
But um, so yeah, it was like writing in totally different genres, completely different sources. And um, it was it was an interesting challenge, but it was certainly a, a challenge to do so. One of the other things that your book really explains so well is how white supremacy, the building blocks of it, are put up after um, Reconstruction ends. Um, you talk about Lucius, uh, am I saying the name right? Lucius, Lucius Lamar's eulogy of Charles yeah. Sumner. Um, you also talk about um, Captain Hardy uh, giving his wife this gift of this town. Um, uh, her name, I guess, was Hattie. And so that's how Hattiesburg comes to be. And then there's Forest County um, is the name of the county after um, the Klan uh, uh, founder. Um, explain what all those things show about how the building blocks of Jim Crow are put up in Hattiesburg and in the South. I think that, that that's another thing that, that the approach here can do, I think. You know, people write big, broad histories, and the actors are groups of people. One of the things that I have here are individual characters that move through the book. And you see how during Reconstruction, for example, on one hand, you get this view from this white character who re Reconstruction is not going very well for him. You know, he's very worried about trying to reestablish white supremacy. And when he gets the chance, right, he helps then fight Reconstruction. He helps overthrow that Reconstruction government. And then he helps celebrate the Confederacy, you know, venerate the Old South. And he's actually doing all of these things in real time, you know. Um, from the individual perspective. And these things are benefiting him. He's getting new opportunities and he's restoring white supremacy across the state. And if you look at his letters and what he wrote, this is precisely what he wanted to do. He explains it as he goes. And then on the other hand, you see the real results for, for an African-American family. So, you know, we might know a lot about how black schools begin to close, but we don't always get the individual perspective. So, you know, for, for the black family highlighted in my book, Reconstruction is a time where, you know, the guy gets to go to school. You know, he goes to one of these Freedmen's Bureau schools, then he gets to go to essentially what is a teacher's college, and he gets to have an opportunity to become a teacher because of Reconstruction. He's able to leave the farm where generations of his family had worked. But then, because of these other factors, because of this restoration of white supremacy, he begins to lose out on pay. You know, he begins to realize that he's not gonna be able to be a teacher anymore and then he's going to have to find a new life for his family and so i think that's one of the things that i hope the book does is puts real people at the center of these broader stories of reconstruction and white supremacy to show how these outcomes can affect individual lives and it's it's fascinating because um even as you say at the nadir of black southern life you argue that there is this tremendous opportunity you know it goes back to that thing that you were saying <laughs> about how people weren't just sitting around, as you put it, getting lynched all these years and white people were changing as well. Um, what were the unintended consequences of Jim Crow laws that were designed to keep white people on top? Um, you say that you know um, this opportunity persists through the African-American spaces. So I think the most obvious and the greatest one is the rise of black institutions and community organizing traditions. And I'm certainly not the first author to say this, but I am somebody who has looked at this across time. And so, you know, when you get to the civil rights movement toward the end of the book, it makes complete sense why, you know, they were organizing in some of these churches because you have the history of these churches going back, you know, to the late 19th century. And so that's the real key. 
the way that black people poured their resources into their communities to build schools that up, that help uplift, uplift their children and then to actually lay the actual foundations the brick and mortar foundations of the civil rights movement that would later come we're going back in time a little bit here but i did want to ask you this question because it was one of these parts of a book you know you're reading a book and you go through and you think this is interesting this is great and you're absorbing and i took a lot of notes as i was writing your book but there was a part where I just had to stop. Uh, it was page 38. Um, and you describe slave labor in pretty vivid detail. Um, I just want to ask why it was important for you to describe what it was like. And I realize we are going back in time a little bit here. But, but why was it important to stop and make the reader really absorb what they were all going through on those fields? You know, I think a lot of times... <laughs> history is sort of whitewashed you know people don't want to talk about the actual thing but in order to understand why slavery and sharecropping potentially was so difficult for individual people to understand their motivation for leaving the farm you've got to really gain a sense of what that work was like in the day you know the way that we'll all move around our, our day, the most important thing today, the thing that we're looking forward to the most, the thing that we're looking forward to the least, those are really important parts of our lives. You know, that's an important part of our experience as human beings on this earth. And to understand that these people spent most of their lives while they were awake, most of their waking hours in that field, you know, I think really gives you an appreciation, I hope, for one, how cruel it was, but then also why it was so important for them to want something better for their children off that farm. Yeah. Just reading about the pain that they lived with and the, um, the backbreaking work and the, the long, long hours. Can you imagine how much sweat it must've been? It's, it was a part of the book that made me just stop and think for a minute. Um, so let's talk about some of the uplifting moments. Um, the Smith family has a relationship with public education that you detail um, so explain, I guess, what that reveals about their family, about how public schools were built up in Hattiesburg. Um, but also, let's talk about um, the piano. Um, you said the music would echo off the walls of their house, the house that they helped build. Um, so just talk about how this family is creating this space for themselves, but both in public education, in their home, with music. So Turner Smith, the patriarch, left his family's sharecropping field to go to school to become a teacher. So education for him is the thing that literally broke that bond to the fields that, you know, his generation had lived and worked in as far back as he could ever tell. And education was the most powerful experience in his life. It literally took him off of those, out of those fields. And he passed that along to his children. His wife, Mamie, also was a teacher they met while well, they were both teachers and they married and he ultimately had to give up his job as a teacher but that the importance of education remained with him he thought that education was a way to free yourself from relying on white people to give you work that you could make something of yourself that you could be more self-reliant he also clearly saw it saw it as a form of intellectual liberation right to break free of these constraints in society that are taught to black and white people at every single turn. And so that was really important for both of them, Turner and Mamie, to pass along to their kids. And it's remarkable that a man who was formerly enslaved 
in Mississippi ended up having four sons who became doctors, you know, and it's that legacy of education that Turner always passed down. And so that the scene that you're talking about at the end of chapter two, this is another example where it's a little bit of a different genre writing about black and white lives. No white person in Hattiesburg would have gone to Turner and said, can you donate, you know, your letters or your diaries or anything like that? Because they didn't think he was important enough as a historical actor. They never imagined somebody like me coming along and wanting to write about him. And so we do, though, have an oral history with his son. And so I wanted to use whatever I could from what his son said about his dad to try and piece together who his father was and what he valued. And because we don't have the same sources as we do for the white community, we don't have the same intimate looks. But I did have this little story that his son told about how they would play the piano and they would dance and sing and Turner would often go up while they were still playing. And so I tried to play off of that, imagining Turner going to bed um, while his kids were playing the piano and what he must have been thinking about, knowing that he himself had delivered himself out of the cotton fields but then also that none of his kids were going to have to go through what he went through as a child and certainly what his ancestors went through. Describe the rules that were put in place to keep blacks from voting in Mississippi and I guess Hattiesburg specifically. And then why does that, um, why does that start pushing white terrorism to start to rise? So, you know, everybody, there's a few different components of Jim Crow era voting. People talk about poll taxes, grandfather clauses, but the literacy test is the real issue. So the literacy test is created after the overthrow of Reconstruction. It's designed to kick Black people off the voter rolls. And when, when they have this constitutional convention where they enact this literacy test in Mississippi, there's no secret at all. You know, you can go and look at the newspaper coverage from New York and Baltimore and they're saying at the time, in real time, they're here to disfranchise Black people. That's what these new things are designed to do. And so the, the literacy test allowed registrars in a county to give this test, this understanding test, if you will, to potential voters. And it had to be taken in person, and there was no oversight. So you show up, you try and register to vote, and the person can ask you whatever they want, and then declare whether or not you were you know, you understood the Constitution well enough to vote. And so obviously Black people were just disfranchised on, you know, the sight test. If you look like you were Black, then you, ought, you were going to fail the literacy test. So we had people that had graduate degrees, you know, that, that were failing this literacy test. And then later when federal registrars came in, they actually found some of the white voters had signed their names with an X. They were literally illiterate but they somehow managed to pass this literacy test. They couldn't even sign their own name. So it just helped reveal, you know, how, um, how prejudiced these tests were. And then how does white terrorism start to develop um, in conjunction with all these things that are going on to suppress African-American voting rights? So there's always been a great deal of violence in places like Mississippi toward African-Americans and one thing to see is this rise of lynching. Lynching doesn't crescendo right after the Civil War or even right after Reconstruction. It happens really around this time when Black people are losing the right to vote. Right around that turn of the century is, is the greatest rates of lynching in Mississippi. And people are moving to new cities. 
the economy is changing. You know, things are happening in in Alabama and Mississippi that reflect the broader South, but it's it's this rise of the new South. And it's this creation of this new racial order that is Jim Crow. Jim Crow didn't just instantly start in 1865. It was something that had to be curated, something that had to be built. And these literacy tests were part of that. And another part of that was this anti-Black hysteria that you saw spread across the entire South, where newspapers and politicians and everybody else you know, were producing plays like The Klansman, for example, that depicted African-Americans as these you know, bloodthirsty rapists. And it's that exact moment where lynching also operates in tandem with political disfranchisement to really, you know, harden what Jim Crow would become until the 1960s. As we go into the 1900s, um, explain the, um, what happens is, uh, as you write in the book, people um, start to leave Hattiesburg. Segregation in public life takes hold, um, and there are people who leave Hattiesburg. Um, it forces, though, perhaps an unintended consequence, it forces whites and blacks to commingle in private life. Um, can you explain that and what it says about the nature of those in power and those not in power? Yeah. So the Great Migration, of course, begins during World War One, and lasts, you know, there's really two big bumps, World War One, World War Two. But this first one in World War One um, was so fascinating to me. I, I certainly knew about this concept, you know, obviously as a historian, but to take a, the look from the Southern view, people talk about the Great Migration as if it's a Northern story. Part of that is true, but it's a very much a Southern story too, you know? And so what happens in Hattiesburg, there's this big dramatic wave of people that just start going in these large groups in 1916 and going into 1917. And they're just leaving, man. They're ducking out 20, you know, groups of 25, one group of, we think about 100, and they're all just leaving in these waves. And it's really interesting because Hattiesburg is so young. So if you think about this from the Southern viewpoint, Hattiesburg was only like 35 years old at the time. That means that the people who were leaving Hattiesburg were older than Hattiesburg itself. So from the Southern viewpoint, they came from somewhere else, came to Hattiesburg and used Hattiesburg as a vehicle to get to the North and escape Jim Crow. And what happens back in Hattiesburg for the people that stay is the black community is now encountering these white folks who are really starting to freak out. In the newspaper coverage, it's just ridiculous. You know, I know it's, a lot of it's kind of scary and really disturbing, but some of the newspaper coverage that you start to read that's talking about the great migration out of Hattiesburg is just so absurd. You know, there are people that talk about white women crying in the kitchen because they have to start preparing their own meals. There are people that are saying that African-Americans cannot deal with the cold biologically. And so they will certainly come back, you know, fear not, they will be back. And, you know, I, I'm black. I grew up in here in Pennsylvania. I can tell you that is not true. <laughs> but, you know, what they're trying to convince themselves that this is not actually happening. And then at the same time, when the people don't start coming back, the white business community has to do something to stop this mass exodus. They go to the African-American leaders in the churches and the business community, and they say, what can we do to stop these people from leaving? And one of the answers that they get is build a high school. See, Hattiesburg, like a lot of counties in Mississippi, did not have a black high school at that time. 
they build the black high school in 1921 directly in response to this mass exodus. Now, I didn't have evidence that said, look, we're doing this for this mass exodus. There was an LA Times article that interviewed local leaders, and they, that's pretty much what they said in the LA Times article. But this black high school becomes a new center point in the black community. And that black high school pours out dozens, if not hundreds of people who would later go on to play a prominent role in the civil rights movement in Hattiesburg. It becomes a community organizing training ground in some sense for these folks. So that was certainly an unanticipated consequence by, by giving them a high school in part to try and stop this exodus, you then give them a new space where so many people are trained, where that community comes together and ultimately where that community helps to fight this Jim Crow system. Did, uh, this is a question that I um, that we've done a whole episode on um, on Axel Bank reports. But um, how are white? Or how are poor whites and poor blacks getting along? Um, that's what I was talking about with those commingling in private life, um, and also I think at the workplace too. You talk about how there were relationships, um, you know, friendly ones uh, in the workplace. Uh, describe how poor whites and poor blacks are getting along at this point? You know, um, Evan, I'm going to expand your question just a little bit, because I think this is the question of the South since the Civil War. Whatever happened, or what could happen if poor whites and poor blacks ever started to vote along the same lines because they share many of the same interests? And it's always benefited elite whites for them to be divided. In Hattiesburg, Poor whites and poor blacks were divided largely because poor whites were always told, you are above all of them no matter what. No matter what happens, you're not black, you always are above them. And that racial division makes sure that white people hold the political power in the area. It, it helps elite whites, even as it can hurt poor whites. One example from the book is that when the Great Depression comes and the Red Cross sets up an office in the Hattiesburg downtown, in Hattiesburg City Hall, the elite whites come in and they say, you can't serve black people and white people together out of this office. That's the rule here. And the Red Cross refuses to discriminate and they kick them out of City Hall. That hurts the poor white people, but at the same time, the poor white people are told, well, we can't have you know, miscegenation or whatever. We can't have desegregation. You know, you're more special to us. So we got to kick the Red Cross out even though they're literally giving you food because they also want to give it to the black people and you're better than them, you're not like them. So in that way, it, it, it hurts poor whites and poor blacks. And that's exactly what elite white Southerners wanted to do as they designed the Jim Crow system. That's very much much of the work that naming the county Forest County, that erecting a Confederate monument and celebrating you know, white supremacy does, is it makes sure these poor whites and these poor blacks can never be politically aligned. If they were, that would be the greatest political force the South has ever seen. One of the things that starts to happen here um, is that the Democratic Party fractures. Um, that starts to impact Hattiesburg. And at the same time, Hattiesburg is also becoming, as you just alluded to uh, in the question before, about uh, being a hotbed of civil rights. Medgar Evers um, is a name that comes up in your book. So talk about how those forces, the fracturing of, whoops, sorry. FaceTime doesn't know we're, we're taping something. Um, talk about how the forces in 
uh, those two forces, uh, Hattiesburg becoming a hotbed of civil rights and also the fracturing of the Democratic Party start to impact Hattiesburg? Well, the, the Democratic Party really begins to fracture over the issue of race, especially in 1948. And in 1948, um, you know, the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention both say on paper that they're going to advocate for civil rights. And, you know, elite white Southerners in places like Mississippi say, well, to hell with both parties. We're going to form our own party, of course, the Dixiecrat Party. And they come back into the fold, you know, eventually, but only, only briefly, and they ultimately leave the Democratic Party in 1964 when the Deep South goes Republican for the first time since Reconstruction. And in Hattiesburg, what's happening is that part of what's happening with the Civil Rights Movement, part of the reason that it does occur when it does, is that Black voters, especially in Northern cities, had become so influential that the Democratic Party and even the Republican Party, to a certain extent, had to listen to what their constituents wanted. Those people cared very deeply about black lives in the Deep South, and they were prodding people in places like Detroit and Chicago and Harlem and Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. They were prodding their representatives to push for civil rights. And it finally breaks through in the 1960s, and that's when you see this wave of activism in Hattiesburg really begin to escalate. Yeah, and I was going to ask about that. So talk about these two would-be challengers of Jim. I think it was two, maybe it was more, but I know you've told two stories um, uh, of would-be challengers of Jim Crow in Hattiesburg and how those stories, though, have diverged um, from the commonly known experiences of figures like Rosa Parks. Um, is it, again, because the media attention was different um, or were the stories different? But first explain the stories of these two challengers to Jim Crow in Hattiesburg. Well, I think that um, one of the most interesting cases to come out of Hattiesburg is this voting rights case in 1950, where a group of Black leaders get together and they sue the local registrar because he's obviously discriminating against them when it comes to registering voters. And they lose that case. That case does not get out of the state of Mississippi. But, you know, if they had some more organizing muscle behind them, they certainly could have proven that they were being discriminated against, just like they were able to do. 15 years later. But, you know, the reason that I don't think a story like that, that a lot of the Black activism before the civil rights movement is part of our national narrative for many people, is because it's not just a victory story. It's not something that suggests that America is in a constant march toward progress, when in fact, in the 1950s, there were people standing up and saying, this is wrong. Even before the 1950s, there were many people who stood up and said, this is wrong. You know, Rosa Parks was far from the first African-American to launch some sort of a protest on, in public transportation. But that is a resounding victory, the Rosa Parks story. That is a win, right, without question. And I think that's one of the reasons that we like to celebrate Rosa Parks, was that, you know, America was just innocently sort of moving along. And then Rosa Parks said, now this is, this is messed up. We need to change this. And then America, of course, said, Oh, you know what? You're right. Let's go ahead. <laughs> That's all that happened, actually. That was it. Yeah, all these books right. that we have are. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. Um, so, yeah, I see what you're saying. You're saying that it, the neat bow that can be put around the Rosa Parks story um, is much easier to handle than some of the other ones. Um, and, and you know, um, you know, you do right that the strength of white supremacy wanes in the 1960s. Um, but how do you connect that to the way 
that Hattiesburg is founded with all these forces that brought people together for economic reasons. Well, you know, it's one of the it's it's one of the reasons Hattiesburg isn't more famous because the town by the 1960s the town had been wrapped in 30 years of trying to bring in new businesses, promote itself as being a business-friendly environment. They're constantly hustling to try and pull in new investors. After the Great Depression, it's a constant hustle for decades. And by the 1960s, when the CBS National News and the NBC National News are standing there with cameras, you know, they're filming the protests happening, and the New York Times has a reporter there, you can't go beat those people up on national TV. You could, but if you do, your city looks terrible and it undermines the efforts that you're making to try and bring in new businesses. And so there's this gaze on them that is so effective because of their own economic uncertainty that makes Hattiesburg a relatively safe place um, in terms of civil rights protests, at least in early 1964, because they can't just go, you know, like in Birmingham, they learned the lesson from Birmingham. They saw what that did to Birmingham and their reputation. They can't just go and attack them like they would have in the early 20th century. One of the things that the book leads up to is that black businesses eventually get hollowed out. Um, can you just talk about how that happened and why? And basically, you know, the book um, sort of opens with this beautiful scene of, um, of a celebration that takes place, but it's also sort of... Um, you, there's nostalgia written into that story because the black neighborhoods are not what they had been. So describe that journey that Hattiesburg went on. Yeah, so Hattiesburg's black businesses, they face a lot of disadvantages. They don't get public support in terms of stop signs and street lights and paved roads and all that. They're, they literally sit in a floodplain in the least desirable part of town. But the one advantage they do have, you know, as odd as this is, is segregation itself. Black people want to shop in their own neighborhood, first of all, so they shop at the black businesses, but then they literally cannot go shop at all of the white stores. And even if they do, they might have a very negative experience in terms of experiencing racism. So the segregation of the Jim Crow society pushed black customers into black businesses. And a lot of black businesses certainly relied on those black customers. After Jim Crow ends, it's not quite, you know, as simple as I'm going to say, but after Jim Crow ends, Black people can go shop wherever they want, and Black people can go work wherever they want. So basically, if you just skim off sort of the top of the Black businesses, you might hire the Black pharmacist to then go work at the white-owned pharmacy. And now the Black pharmacist doesn't have his own shop downtown where all the Black people might shop. And so it's that sort of process by which the South is desegregated, but then also a lot of black people start to go into white owned businesses. And this is also the time where we get more and more chain stores coming in. You know, Walmart emerges in the wake of the civil rights movement, for example, and those all begin to suck up the mom and pop shops for white and black people, but they hurt black people disproportionately, or black businesses disproportionately. What becomes of the family of Turner and Mamie Smith, Trace? a bit of their genealogy here and where they wind up. A bunch of them have been very, very successful. Yeah, so Turner and Mamie Smith, um, a couple of their sons who became doctors decided to leave the South. You know, every generation then faced, after the Great Migration, this, this question of, well, do you stay or do you go? 
And if you are a doctor, you had a lot of opportunities to go. So a couple of them did leave. Um, one moved to Ohio, one moved to California. Um, their daughter moved to an area just south of Memphis, but the two oldest sons stayed. And the two oldest sons played a role in helping to build the foundations of the black community and helping to, you know, their names were on the churches where the civil rights movement um, was held basically locally. And their family eventually sort of scatters outside of Hattiesburg, but they are an incredibly important black family that helps guide black life there um, through the 1960s. And you said four of them became doctors. Yep. Um, so where is Hattiesburg today? Uh, politically, yes, I'd be curious to know that. Um, uh, it looked like the mayor of the town is a white guy who had been a Republican, but was now independent. So I'd be curious to hear where Hattiesburg stands politically. Um, and also I'd be curious to know whether it's a majority um, black city now. Um, but uh, you also say, so I, I guess put those to the side for a second, but you also say that African-Americans in the South um, certainly have more opportunities today than they ever did, but that losses were embedded within the, the iconic victories that you and I have talked about during this. So Hattiesburg today is majority black, um, just by a slight edge. It used to only be one third black, but a lot of what Hattiesburg today is resembles is sort of the classic Southern post-civil rights story. You know, white people begin to leave the cities. They found these private academies. The schools don't ever desegregate. We just get new white schools that are created. But it is a little bit different from the classic Southern story, I think. I think largely because it's proximity to the coast. The coast has always been a little bit different from in Mississippi. It's not quite as rigidly segregated as like the Mississippi Delta, for example. But then Hattiesburg is also really a college town. So Southern Miss, the University of Southern Mississippi is there. And that really grew during World War II and after World War II. And because of that, there are a lot of people who have moved in that aren't necessarily as beholden to the old racial and political traditions of the past in Mississippi. And it's, it's led by this mayor who is a millennial, I think. And, yeah, um, guy. Yep. and so he seems to be operating with a different perspective in that he's seeing a lot of these things with some fresh eyes. It's important to realize that Jim Crow isn't that far past us. You know, anybody who grew up in the South before 1964, 1965 lived in the Jim Crow South. And a lot of that way of life still governs the leadership in different places in this country. My father was born in 1948 in Little Rock, Arkansas. You know, he grew up in the Jim Crow South. And so I think part of what's happening with the new generation, they didn't go to school learning the same things, right? They didn't grow up learning the same things. And I think he's seeing things a little bit differently. And probably the most um, I'll say impressive to me at least way that he's responded to some of these recent challenges about our past is he actually called for the Confederate monument in Hattiesburg to be taken down. And I think that's probably pretty rare for a mid-sized Southern mayor to actually do a, certainly a white mid-sized city Southern mayor to do. Um, but he, you know, he's a little bit more progressive, I think, than you might expect a white Republican in Mississippi to be. As we listen um, to this episode and we read your book and we think about the lessons of Hattiesburg, but also of other cities in the South, but let's focus on Hattiesburg. Um, and as we go through this very difficult and 
sometimes confusing and sometimes very clear moment in American history when it comes to race relations. What should be the lesson of Hattiesburg that we take with us from your studies to inform us of what we are seeing in front of us here in the year 2020? You know, let me say, let me give you a very short answer and then I'll give you a little bit of a longer one. Part of what I wanted to do was studying so much of the economic history of this town. Um, and I learned that, that I learned the importance of, of that certainly as I went through. But part of the black white wealth gap, part of the reason that white people historically in the South have had more wealth than black people is not just because they're more innovative or even just that black people face segregation. They have had enormous access to external resources provided by the federal government and by companies all the way from Philadelphia to London, right? And that helps explain a lot of the, a lot of the issues with this gap right now. The other thing that I want to say is that if you just think about black history, you know, I don't think I realized this until my uncle told me this after reading my book and we're, you know, monument debate was up in the air and all this and that. But he said to me, you know, William, this is, I get what you've done here. This is a monument to our people. So this is, re, this is putting black people back at the center of this story that we tell ourselves in America, not just during slavery or not just during the civil rights movement, but during those years in between, right? Black people didn't get to build things in the same way as white people because of racial segregation. And one of the things that we can do is not erect monuments necessarily to African-Americans, not just that, but to study their lives as if they were whole complete people who made real contributions to this region and to our country. And I think, you know, that to me, thinking about that has always been really powerful. That's clearly what I wanted to do, to highlight the contributions of African-Americans to show that black people have a history that goes beyond just, you know, being mere victims. I had the opportunity when I was in Hattiesburg last time to meet the descendants of the Smith family. And, you know, when your family gets treatment like that, it's, you're just so grateful because if you're black and you think about the past, it's just, oh my God, these awful things were happening to our people. You know, that's our history. But black history is so much more than that. You know, there were victories and there were really empowering moments. And I think that's important to establish as we look forward um, and think about our history. We did talk a little bit about the violence that um, Hattiesburg saw. How... Just to wrap things up here, um, how do we use the lessons of the conflict that we saw in Hattiesburg to inform our own thought process over things like police shootings and the Black Lives Matter movement? Well, first of all, this is nothing new. Um, people, Black people have been protesting police violence since the 1800s. And gosh, when I would go through, you know, Black Lives Matter was happening as I was researching the book. And as I lived in Hattiesburg, um, Trayvon Martin was killed. And I was going through old newspapers at the time every Saturday. And my God, I saw so many news stories of Black people getting killed in Hattiesburg from the 1920s and the 1930s. It was all over the place. It was immeasurable. That this is not something new. What is new is the technology that can document it and can prove what happened. But then also, and I think this is the one thing that I could wish this book would do. If you know anything about the history of voting rights in this country, what it has meant to the Black people that fought for it, and what they had to go through to fight for it, 
you would never dare not cast a ballot if you were black. And you know, that should be the most important cultural dynamic of black life in America is protecting that right to vote. And as we're facing a moment right now where, you know, think about the challenges to voting, right? And the confusion and the chaos that we're seeing being sowed from the highest levels of our, um, you know, our political power. Um, black people should vote like their lives depend on it. Their vote certainly does depend on it. But, you know, out of respect for what people have been through, out of respect for what could come, um, black people should vote. Dr. William Sturkey, author of Hattiesburg, an American city in black and white. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. And certainly check out that book and also his Twitter profile, which is at William underscore Sturkey. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.